Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the ICJ Thursday afternoon webinar. And uh, today I'm very delighted to have a very expert, high-ranking group of people talking to me today about some current affairs that literally are unfolding while we are speaking. I'm joined today by uh, Dr. Dan Diker. He's, uh, I can say, Dan, a, a friend of the ICJ for many years. I remember you very well from the time when you were the chairman here in Israel of the World Jewish Congress. You've joined the Jerusalem Center of Public, Public Affairs. And we also are joined by Mr. Pinchas uh, in bar. He's one of the senior researchers here in Israel about matters related to Palestinian affairs, the Temple Mount, and of course, as we see uh, things unfolding with the uh, Arab violence coming out of the Arab streets here in Israel. I think this is a very current subject. And there are three major topics that we want to cover today. This is number one, the stability of the, in the, in, in the Israeli government. And um, here, literally, as we are speaking, there are some changes on the way. Uh, secondly, we are going to speak about this new surge of Arab violence on Israeli street and what is the origin of that. And then thirdly, also unfolding right now as we are talking, is uh, a new escalation in regards to Iran, where certain things are taking place right now here in the land of Israel. Um, Dan, can I start with you? Um, um, we just talked a few moments ago that the Israeli government is really uh, in literally in a limbo right now, in particular, as not only a few weeks ago, one of the members of the uh, leading government co coalitions was leaving. But actually, right now, just a few moments ago, another member was leaving. Is this the end of the Israeli government? Well, it certainly is another uh hole in the bow or shot across the bow and hole in, in the sinking boat of this very fragile uh, government coalition, Jürgen, uh, mm -hmm. which has been fragile from the first moment. Uh, it was established about a year ago. In fact, in the history of the, uh, of the third uh, Jewish uh, uh, Commonwealth-Republic, uh, starting in 1948, we have never seen a situation in which the kingmaker in this very fragile government was actually uh, the leader of the Southern Islamic Party, the Southern Islamic Movement, Dr. Mansour Abbas. Now, Dr. Dr. Abbas um, uh, has been very much uh, uh, the kingmaker and, and the decider as to whether the, the government uh, would, would uh, remain or would fall. And he has been a very pragmatic member of the government, and he's come under fire from his own faction for his very pragmatic status quo type of uh, resilience, I should say. Um, but um, there just um, let, moments ago, a member of Knesset Zawabi from the Merits Party um, announced that she would be leaving the coalition. And then uh, that of course uh, was um, the second move in addition to member of Knesset Stillman, uh, Stillman from the uh, Yamina party, which was the party of the prime minister. So yes, it's a very unstable situation. They are, a they are officially, in 48 hours from this conversation, they will be officially a minority government of 59, um, which does not bode well because of the three subjects we're talking about. Each one of those subjects, Jürgen, Jürgen could, could actually bury this government, um, you know, from hour to hour. And uh, you know, you you mentioned this was a first off in the modern history of Israel that an Arab party was in a way becoming the kingmaker. There were, I believe, two other first offs. Number one is that you know, there was uh, one of the smallest fractions of the of the of the government actually was providing the prime minister. I think this never happened before. And then secondly, also that this wasn't really a government that was formed on political issues, but it was formed around the person and uh, against the person. We have to say that the the whole idea was well, we don't want Benjamin Netanyahu back, and under this subject in a way everybody was rallying together. This is very true and I think there's one other point before I'd like to toss it over to, to Pinchas Inbari and, and just say that that we're very honored to have Pinchas as a, as a colleague. Pinchas is really I would say the greatest expert on issues of, of, of the Palestinians, the Jordanians and the larger Middle East that I know of. So I wanted to give that plug as his colleague because he's been a teacher to so many of us. But let me just say on this political point, Jurgen. 
um, uh, you know, it's been, uh, it, it's really been a very, very uh, a, a fragile situation um, um, from the beginning, uh, even though that uh, uh, I know that Dr. Abbas has tried to keep things, has tried to keep things together. And, and I will say it's a political accident that caused this uh, government to come into being because it, it, it was never meant um, in terms of, of the foundations of parliamentary democracy for, a, for the leading party to be, uh, which is the Likud party, that won double the number of seats of the number two party, which was the, what is called, there is a future party, the Likud party won 35, 36 seats, and it's sitting as the leader of the opposition. That was not supposed to be the foundational reality of a parliamentary government. I, I don't think we've seen that in any European parliamentary situation, um, that the leading party that won by double the number of seats in the parliament is now leading the opposition. And the, one of the smallest parties, which is the Yamina party, which only got six, six or seven uh, uh, seats, now six, it was seven, is, is, has now crowned the prime minister. This is truly a, an error in terms of the underlying um, uh, thinking and the underlying foundation of a parliamentary democracy. And I do think it's something that Israel will have to correct in its basic laws as we, as we move forward. Mm -hmm. So, so Pinchas, how, how do you see, we, we spoke about the rise of uh, an Arab party for the first time to be part of the governing coalition in Israel. How do you, how do you view that as an expert on the Arab street? Yes, I uh, investigated the Arab street during the last uh, two years and more during uh, the several election campaigns. And for me, uh, the joining of Mansour Abbas party into the government was very natural, very natural, because he responded uh, to the true spirit of his uh, society. Uh, I heard uh, uh, time and again uh, from different uh, speakers uh, in the street that they want to be part of the system. They are fed up of being in a position for eternity, uh, only complaining all the time. And uh, they took uh, as an example, uh, the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox. Uh, they, they, they said, the ultra-Orthodox are not Zionist and still they're part of the, of the Zionist government and they uh, benefit from budgets, uh, etc. Uh, so uh, it is not a condition for us to be Zionist in order to be part of the government. And mm. we can also raise our case inside the system and take care about ourselves. And when we ask them, so about the Palestinian, what is about the Palestinian problem? You know what they told me? The Palestinian problem is the problem of the Israeli government. It is not a problem of us. Mm. Wow. This is a very important point, Jurgen, because there is a shift going on, I think, among a lot of Israeli Arabs that do not want to be assigned a Palestinian identity or to be assumed to be embracing the Palestinian national um, cause in the way because most of the members of the Knesset uh, in the Arab sector, led by, um, led by the Arab Communist Party, led by the Islamist party, led by a coalition of, of, of left parties together with Islamist parties have, have traditionally embraced the Palestinian cause as their major uh, rallying point. And today, as Pinchas has said, and Mansour Abbas has said publicly, we care about ourselves as Israeli Arabs with an Israeli Arab uh, uh, constituency and, and, and who wants budgets and who wants uh, a greater integration in the political process, the Palestinian issue, they can take care of themselves opposite the Israeli government. That's not our identity. That's not our political future. So Pinkas, how much do you see what the, this process that was 
just right now described. How much is this just a result of uh, seven decades of frustrations where they just got fed up by the conflict? Or how much was this also uh, encouraged or even supported by the Abrahamic Accords where they realized we might actually lose our whole um, friendship with the Arab world if we don't wake up? Yes, uh, now, uh, uh, after Oslo agreements were signed, a negative uh, process started inside the Israeli Arab society because they took a model from the Palestinian Authority and the PLO and Arafat became very popular and they wanted to be part of Palestine and not of Israel, okay? But in, but in course of time, they saw the model of the PA as a failed, as a failed uh, test. They saw that this experiment of a Palestinian uh, nationality and a Palestinian statehood will not work. And uh, they did not want to be part of a failure. Mm. Uh, so the popularity of being Israelis uh, uh, grew up. Now, when, when, the Arab, when the Israeli Arabs uh, discovered it, when they came uh, to visit, uh, to make shopping uh, in the West Bank, they discovered that the Palestinians in the West Bank envied them of being Israelis. Hmm. And in the West Bank, they were proud to be Israelis. The problem was they went back to Israel and here, and here's a, 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 their status vis-a-vis -vis the other Israelis was not as perceived in Jenin, okay? Mm -hmm. So wow. this created the conflict of identity among them, uh, but the more they are acquainted with the failure examples of Ramallah, of Jordan, uh, mm -hmm. uh, so they feel, they feel they, 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 they feel uh, proud to be Israelis, okay? The problem is when they are back in Israel. So that's the problem. Uh, yeah. But I, 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 I believe that uh, the more Israel will be a successful state and the Arab states will be failure states, not to speak about the Palestinians, they are completely, it's a complete failure already. Mm. Uh, so this will, uh, this will uh, uh, strengthen the Israeli identity of the Israeli Arabs. So, so how so much do you think the Abrahamic Accord was playing yeah. a role? Yeah, that's a very important question. Uh, Dan, you want to, to respond yes. to that? Yes, the Abraham Accords, one has, to, um, one has to include that question in the panoply of questions affecting the Israeli versus the Arab versus the, let's call it the Palestinian pressure on the identity of the Israeli Arabs as, as, as Pinchas has just um, um, as outlined now. You know, when the Abraham Accords, and then let's remember the Abraham Accords were called for normalization. And the word in the Arabic is a tatbiya, tatbiya, normalization. That's the key concept and victory of the Abraham Accords. For all intents and purposes, the Abraham Accords signaled the end of the Arab-Israeli conflict or towards mm. the end of the Arab-Israeli conflict because it had the blessing of Saudi Arabia. There, the Egypt and Jordan had already had peace, uh, peace accords, even though they were very cold peace, they were cold peace accords. But this is a normalization accord so that the, the, uh, uh, the United Arab Emirates, the Bahrainis, the Moroccans, and to a degree, even though it's a more complicated story, the Sudan, the Sudan, uh, 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 Sudan, have joined a circle of normalization that have given permission to the Israeli Arab electorate to reconsider their own relationship with the country in a public, in a more public uh, sense. Mm -hmm. Now, I can share one thing with you that that there that the. Palestinian establishment in the West Bank uh, and in Gaza were so furious with the Abraham Accords that um, the, uh, the um, Palestinian Authority Mufti of Jerusalem, Sheikh Mohammed Hussein, issued an Islamic ruling against each one of those countries from praying 
in the Al-Aqsa Mosque. They, they, they prohibited them from praying in the mosque um, because of their, of their fury against these four states. So on the one hand, the states have had a more positive effect on the Israeli Arab constituency, and they have actually isolated the Palestinians um, in this um, ongoing drama, which is called the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, which has now been somewhat separated um, and isolated from the Arab-Israeli relationship, which has now become an issue much of greater normalization and possibility in terms of trade, defense cooperation, and, um, and mutual investment in many other fields. So th this leads me um, to the next subject. And there was over this last couple of weeks, uh, I, I believe it started with the beginning of the uh, Ramadan fasting period, uh, the month of Ramadan, that uh, there was a new flare up of Arab violence in the streets of Israel, uh, horrendous scenes where um, one of the attackers or two of the attackers went with uh, um, access into one of the settlements and brutally murdered people. Others are being stabbed on the streets of Israel. There was for a few weeks, there was hardly a day when you didn't see some bloodshed on Israeli streets. So on the one side, we see this normalization. And I believe there is also a record number of um, Arabs in Israel that are applying for Israeli passports. And at the same time, you see this flare up of violence. So Pinchas, how, how do you explain this uh, recent violence of the last few weeks? Israel, uh is the target of a violent uh, incitement from all directions, uh, from the PA, from President TV and, uh, and Radio Palestine, uh, which, is, which are financed by Europe, by the way, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, from, uh, uh, and from Hamas in Gaza, from the other, from, uh, 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 from the other side. And of course, uh, uh, hatred is effective. And, uh, and the young generation uh, is what is, uh, is uh, influence, influence. And uh, they believe, and they believe after you tell them, uh, kill the Jews, kill the Jews, the Jews are so, the Jews are that. So in the end, in the end, uh, uh, they feel that they must uh, do something, okay? And Tibrahim uh, Sinwar was very specific uh, in his uh, last uh, speech, take an axe and kill the Jew. Uh, so they, they took an axe and kill, uh, and, uh, kill so who, Jews. Who is Tibrahim Sinwar? He said in his... Uh, who is he? Yeah? Yahya Sinwar is the head of Hamas uh, in Gaza. He's mm -hmm. the leader of Gaza. Now uh, he makes he tried he, he he did not want to open a front with Israel, okay? So he did everything else, but not to not not to warm up uh, the front of Gaza with Israel. So one of the of his tricks was to give a flammatory speech of uh, blood and fire, etc., 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 that he thought it will be instead of open a real war, okay? But somebody heard him and took him seriously and took an ex and came to kill Jews, okay? So I put the responsibility on this hatred campaign on Hamas and Yahya Sinwar. But, uh, but, but uh, Radio Palestine and Palestine TV uh, are not much better. They will not say take an ex and kill a Jew, but they will say everything short of it, okay? Mm. And uh, I think that uh, sometimes somebody must come to the, to, at least to the PA, tell them, we Europe, we are financing you, okay? Uh, 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 Palestine TV. And Red Palestine, are you financed by Germany, for example, and other European countries? Okay, so are we financing hatred against Jews? Okay, this is not the purpose. It is about uh, 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 about uh, uh, teaching peace. Okay, talking peace, not talking hatred. Okay, 
Uh, but uh, okay, so so they are brainwashed, and uh, nobody is stopping it all the time repeatedly, all the time repeatedly, and the medicine is Israel Paraya, and uh, the blood of the Israelis and the Jews abroad uh, exposed to, to, uh, to be killed. How much in that do you think the, the whole question of the Temple Mount, there was a lot about talking about Israel breaking some of the rules of the Temple Mount. And I think there's also maybe an underlying conflict between Jordan. How much does this all fall, fall, uh, fall into the uh, recent uh, violence? Of course, of course. Uh, Israel must be more, more careful about uh, Temple Mount, uh, but also without Temple Mount, okay? I, I, I watching uh, Palestine TV and uh, and Radio Palestine before the Temple Mount. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, the level of incitement is the same, but now it's it's better to speak about Temple Mount. Okay, mm-hmm. without Temple Mount, I invented something else. Okay, no problem. But but uh, Temple Mount is something very real, and I, I will tell you why. Because the Arab world does not care about Temple Mount anymore, anymore. End of story, okay? Just one, another mosque, okay? And- uh, they, they probably never cared about it in the beginning. No, no, in, no, no, no. In the beginning, let us say, before the Arab storm, before what we saw in Syria and Iraq, the issue of Temple Mount and Jerusalem was very dear to the Arabs. No, but I mean, before 1948, it wasn't a very prominent Islamic site. Ah, okay. No, it was not, of course. Of course. But now it is. Now, what the Palestinians feel now about it, okay, the Arabs don't care. So we are the last to defend Al-Aqsa Mosque. Hmm. And And this becomes an icon to unite the Palestinians. Otherwise, there is no, nothing in common, nothing that they share, only Palestinian. Okay, so what is Palestinian? It's not something concrete, it's an, it's an idea, okay? Mm. But Temple Mount is something concrete. It's a symbol, okay? Like the menorah for the Jews, okay? And, uh, and because they, they felt alone and nobody is coming to rescue, so they need to rescue. And this this is a point that Israel must take into consideration, okay? Because here there is something to unite them. Until now, everybody was alone. The Israeli Arabs alone, the Negev alone, West Bank alone, Gaza, but here may develop something very dangerous for, for Israel. So, so a question to both of you, you know, it's um, the Temple Mount is not only, they say, the fourth most holy shrine in the Arab world, but of course it is the most holy place for the Jewish people. So uh, for both of you, how would you see a solution for that? I remember very well when I came to Israel uh, 27 years, it was relatively easy to access the Temple Mount and to visit the place. Over the last few, two, three decades, there was a a major shift that you really feel that it becomes more difficult to go there. There are, um, I think you write, wrote about that, Pinchas, that there are now new mosques being built. Uh, what do you, how do you see a future scenario for the Temple Mount? Well, I just want to add one point of historical context. Since the la- over the last hundred years, the Temple Mount has been used as a flashpoint by uh, Palestinian and Arab nationalists. If you remember Haj Amin al Husseini, who was the first, uh, you would call, uh, spiritual uh, political leader of, of the Arabs in, Pal- in, in geographical Palestine at that time. A good friend of Adolf Hitler, also, I believe. He, he was an associate of Hitler and he was connected to the fascist movement in Italy as well. He spent a lot of time in Berlin. And he actually called for the destruction of Jewry in Tel Aviv. He called mm. for the he called from Berlin for Hitler to bomb Tel Aviv, 
in the same way that he was exterminating the Jews in Poland and in Germany and, and France and Italy and Greece and, and the rest of, and much of, of, of Europe. Um, and, and remember, it all surrounded the concept of Al-Aqsa. Hajj Amin al Husseini said in 1922, the Jews, I mean, how many Jews? There were tens of thousands of Jews and hundreds of thousands of, of Arabs at that time. And the Jews wanted to make a, a prayer space in the Western World Plaza. And they said, the Jews are destroying our Al-Aqsa. The Jews are taking. So it was, an, it was only an idea in their mind about what the Jew represented for them as a threat. And this continued decades forward, and, and, and it was adopted very actively by Yasser Arafat, who, as a matter of fact, Pinchas Inbari and I went to Jordan in 2009 and sat with uh, Senator Al-Rifai, uh, who at that time was the head of the Jordanian Senate. And he said, you know why it's so important for Jordan and the Waqf and Jordan to, to protect the Temple Mount? Because, because uh, he said, you know, uh, the Shia have uh, Najaf and Karbala in Iraq. The, the, the Saudis have Mecca and Medina. And we, to be relevant as, as, as one of the leaders of the Arab world, the Hashemite kingdom has to maintain Al-Aqsa. Remember, uh, Pinchas, this conversation? With, we had it over tea in, in the Jordanian yes. Senate in yes. Amman in yes, 2009. And I never forgot that, Jürgen. I never forgot that idea that, that Al-Aqsa for the Jordanians was so important because it, was, it, 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 it made them one of the three major players in the Middle East. And they also recognized that the Palestinians under Arafat were trying to ignite the revolutionary forces of the entire Middle East around the notion of Al-Aqsa. And that is what's happening today as well. The Palestinian leadership uses Al-Aqsa from a religious and political revolutionary standpoint to try to trigger the Islamic um, impulse of, 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 of 350 million Arabs to try to bring them against, get them to move against Israel. So from an historical point of view, it's always been a fiery uh, flashpoint uh, for religious and, and political instability in the Arab Muslim world. But going back to now to the second part of your question, um, I want to quote Pinchas. Pinchas has been a big, has been a, a, a major force for the for uh, the intellectual idea of status quo. Status quo that was that was established in 1967 between the Israeli government at that time, who made a very controversial move. It was considered one of the most pacifist moves in the history of international politics, where Moshe Dayan, our foreign minister at the time, gave the keys of Israel, of Jews, holiest site, the focus of Israeli, sorry, the focus of Jewish religious aspirations for the 2000 years before, he handed those keys to the Jordanian waqf. And, yeah. and, 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 and the truth is that there has been stability in the cooperation between the, uh, the, the, the Jordanian waqf of Muslim to, to handle Muslim affairs in the, on the ho Muslim holy shrines and every Israeli government more or less until the Oslo period when Arafat and his henchmen tried to destabilize the Temple Mount, kick out, they, they actually did for a while, they kicked, they, they overrode uh, um, the uh, Jordanian supervision of the Temple Mount and installed their own uh, their own uh, 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 authority, and those, and though they were very destabilizing, and in fact, um, uh, as part of our joint work, Pinchas and I met uh, secretly with representatives of the Israeli security establishment who were in touch with the Jordanian monarchy in 2002 to restore the status quo and Jordanian supervision over over the mount. So it seems to me that that is the direction we need to talk about is to maintain the status quo, which means that the Israelis cannot make uh, hardline, hawkish uh, pilgrimages for public prayer uh, to the Temple Mount because of the, because of the national security implications, not because the Jews don't have the right, God forbid, they have the right and they, and they should in any normal situation, but mm -hmm. it is such a flammable situation that it, the status quo whereby the Jews would pray by the Western wall to the Temple Mount, and the Muslims will pray 
uh, on, on, you know, in the Muslim holy shrines. That seems to me to be the best way. And I think I speak for Pinchas as well. I'd love to hear Pinchas's take, but to, to maintain stability and calm and cooperation with the Jordanians uh, in the, the third, uh, let's call it, uh, most important religio-political spots in the Middle East. So Pinchas, uh, be before you answer that, um, we just learned that uh, Jordan is actually the religious custodian of the Temple Mount. They are leading the Waqf, the religious institution, which is in charge of the Temple Mount. What is the role that Jordan plays in all that? Because if I look at the Abrahamic Accord also, it seems that uh, Egypt is joining in. Of course, the, the Arab nations, the, the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia, they are part, but with Jordan, you don't really know on which game they are playing. Sometimes the, the voices that come out from Amman are not really in the same spirit than what we hear today in Saudi Arabia or Bahrain. So where does Jordan stand in all that? Okay, now, uh, I was uh, disappointed uh, by the Jordanian response to the initiative uh, to restore the status quo before the year uh, 2000, when everything started to dismantle, okay? Uh, I hoped that Jordan will say, okay, uh, to coming back to the original status quo of 67, Oh, it looks like he, Pinchas froze for a moment. Oh. Um, well, yeah. a little note for our listeners also. Um, I should have said this before. Uh, this uh, webinar today, it's pre-recorded. It's right now uh, 2.40 um, Thursday afternoon. Uh, we will be broadcasting it at uh, four o'clock. That means when you're watching it, uh, we already have recorded our conversation. That means also for all of you, you cannot really have a Q&A session. We will not be able to answer your question live. And I see Pinchas left completely, but do you want to carry yeah, on? Yeah, I can finish. Uh, I can Jordanian? actually finish. Yeah, yeah. I think <laughs> I can finish Pinchas's point. I know. I think I know where he was going. I, what Pinchas was saying, because we worked a lot together on this issue um, yeah. towards 2000. And I think uh, that Pinchas's uh, uh, response is that the Jordanian government um, disappointed um, in terms of its um, relative passivity towards 2000, when Yasser Arafat was stirring up lots and lots of trouble, um, using Al-Aqsa and the Temple Mount as the flashpoint uh, to try to mobilize the entire Muslim world and the entire Arab world simultaneously around the issue mm. of Al-Aqsa is in danger, which is exactly what uh, Hajj Amin al-Husseini said in 1922 and through the 1930s. Okay, so uh, uh, the, the, the question you would ask, Jurgen, is, well, what game is Jordan playing? Because it seems that they contradict themselves. On the one hand, it's in their national interest to maintain as much peace and quiet and stability on the Temple Mount as possible. On the other hand, just recently, in the last month, they have been encouraging in the United Nations, the Prime Minister of Jordan was actually uh, inciting violence against Israel on the Temple Mount and mm -hmm. saying that the, they, call them the, they called Israel the Zionist occupiers, they called us, uh, um, they, they called us uh, the, uh, you know, uh, uh, other names that were, were particularly unfriendly. And this is really, this is really, really a problem um, because, uh, because this is supposed to be our partnership. Here's Pinchas calling me on the phone, I think, to try to reconnect. He's coming in here also, I see. Uh, in the uh, webinar. Yeah, yeah. But, but Jordan, Jordan has got to play one game and one game only because mm. by, by, by playing a double game, which is by delegitimizing de Israel and encouraging the, the violence uh, on the Temple Mount. And at the same time, trying to maintain quiet, it's almost, it's almost like the arsonist playing the, fire, the, playing the fire department at the same time. Oh. Sorry, I was, I was, okay. Yeah, Pinyas, we already got an answer for the question from Dan, but a question to both of you very briefly, and then we move on to another big subject that has to do with Iran. So how do you see the future of the Arab street here in Israel? 
Uh, you see, we do see this uh, flare up right now of new violence. We also see very encouraging sign, including an, an Arab party that it, for the first time is joining the Israeli government. So where do you see the future of the Arab street in Israel, both to you, Dan and Pinchas? Uh, okay, uh, uh, I'm not very much pessimistic about uh, the, the, the Israeli street uh, uh, because what we saw this year, at least, it was uh, in the margins, okay? Uh, the bulk of the Israeli Arabs, they want to be part of Israel, no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. And in and, uh, and, and this stage of history, uh, I can conclude that there is Israeli economic Israelization of the Israeli Arabs, okay? Uh, in this stage, they don't say, okay, we are Zionist, we, we, we shall uh, sing the Hatikva or salute to the Israeli flag. No, this is not the stage now, but we want to be doctors in the Israeli hospitals. We want to integrate into the Israeli companies. We want to represent Israeli companies in, in abroad, etc. As far as the economy is concerned, they are very much interested to integrate into it, and of course into the political system. Mansour Abbas now is uh, taking this the spoiling uh, factors of Ayman Ode and Ahmad Tibi, and we shall wait and see who is stronger, the spoilers or the true movement. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, so as for the West Bank, I also I I I, uh, I see a very a very low uh, movement of violence uh, located in specific problematic spaces uh, like Jenin and not spread over uh, to the West Bank and do not uh, overflow uh, to the Israeli cities. Mm -hmm. So I think that it is handled. Uh, properly currently, okay? So this is what I see. The Arab world is not interested in the Palestinian problem whatsoever. For them, the Palestinians, they want to be killed, okay? God bless them. They want to flourish, also good, no problem. They don't feel any more uh, sympathy, uh, empathy with the Palestinians. So Dan, what is your take? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a very important point for our audience to bear in mind. Because what Pinchas has said here that the that the Saudi Arabia-led Gulf uh, powers um, do not feel the same public or private sympathy for the Palestinian leadership um, is a very very far-reaching moment represents a, mm -hmm. a moment because uh, paradigm you know, shift it's a it's a complete paradigm shift which uh, you know you remember uh, for, uh, former Secretary of State John Kerry's. A representation back in 2000, um, in 2015, in which he said, and you can find this on the internet, there will not be a separate Israeli-Arab reconciliation until the Palestinian issue is solved. That paradigm is dead, and and um, and and you know it, it's it's actually extraordinary that that so many Western leaders don't get it, uh, and and I think that. Um, the International Christian Embassy Jerusalem can be very helpful and our European friends can be helpful in, in conveying that message that the Palestinians today are considered by the Arab establishment as the bastard children of the Arab League. And they are, this is not a Palestine first Middle East anymore. This is, a, this is potentially a, a Middle East that has much more regional issues uh, to deal with and Iran to, uh, mm -hmm. and Iran to deal with. This is a, this is a very, very, um, important point. Now, just to go to your other question quickly. The, yeah. the, I came back, as I mentioned to you before we went live, from Auschwitz-Birkenau and, and Krakow with 25 Israeli Arab citizens of Israel. And I was overwhelmed, even until tears, with the sympathy, the patriotism, the loyalty, and the support of these Arabs. We're talking about Christian Arabs, we're talking about Muslim Arabs and we're talking about Druze, Druze Israeli citizens. Mm. And th this was all part of an organization called Together Vouch for Each Other, which is a new grassroots uh, movement that's began in Nazareth and has hundreds of activists now, and they're growing by leaps and bounds. And they, as Pinchas and I have said on this, uh, on this Zoom conversation, 
want to be more Israeli socioeconomically um, while being proud Arabs, proud Israelis, and, and, and proud, um, uh, let's call them socioeconomically invested citizens of the state of Israel. Uh, and this, this is really where we are today. We're facing, we're facing a, 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 an intersection in the road, in the road of narratives, one between the radicalized narrative that drove some Israeli Arabs to murder Jews in Israel. They were radicalized, they were also paid. Um, and the other part of the intersection, the other road is the more moderate narrative that's driven, that is opened by Mansour Abbas in this coalition, that's being supported by the Abraham Accords and, that, and also by the failure of the Palestinian, uh, of the Palestine Liberation Organization, the Palestinian National Movement in the West Bank and Gaza, and the enormous success of Israel as a small democracy um, in its economic life and in its political uh, and, and, and security success among the other Arab nations in, in, the, in the region. So there is great room for optimism. And the, I think the European powers would do themselves very well to focus on helping the Israeli Arab community economically, um, as opposed to all the time focusing on the Palestinian Authority, which, which with, with whom they will get nowhere. And, you know, that's what I just wanted to say. You know, what I keep hearing from both of you is the socioeconomic impact Israel has on the Arab Strait. And what the European Union is doing right now, they actually are boycotting every economic endeavor of Israel in the West Bank. And I was visiting myself, the economic centers uh, outside of Ariel and in the Balkan Industrial Park. And these are the places of true peace and coexistence. And rather than boycotting them, they actually should put investments there and encourage those initiatives. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, we produced a book uh, at the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs, uh, and you can find it online. It's called Defeating Denormalization. Uh, denormalization, of course, anti-normalization has been the policy of the Palestinian Authority now for some years, even though they're supposed to be our Oslo sanctioned peace partners. And the Europeans, I mean, here's a headline for this Zoom conference. So many European leaders have been deceived by the Palestinian leadership. And it's mm -hmm. time that they open their eyes and we beg them, open your eyes and understand the way the Dutch uh, the, the, have understood about the textbook issue, that they are, uh, that they are um, destroying the possibility of collaboration they are running out of Ramallah, the, the BNC, the, the Boycott National Committee, which has the Islamic Jihad, which has Hamas, which has the PFLP, Popular Front, Marxist-Leninist, Popular Front for the uh, Liberation of Palestine as partners in the boycott movement. And if the European uh, states and powers want to be helpful, they should stop being willfully deceived by the Palestinian leadership and they should, they should focus on helping socioeconomic initiatives in Israel with the Israeli Arab community, because that is going to be the future for the Palestinian public. When the mm -hmm. Palestinian public sees the Israeli Arab public fully integrated in, 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 uh, uh, and moving up the socioeconomic scale, which they are doing, that will send a signal, a stronger signal to the Palestinian public in the West Bank, and they uh, will demand greater accountability of their leadership. Well, this is definitely something for our European heroes who are paying European tax money to the European Union, and that our money, the European tax money, should be used to foster peace, collaboration, and not sanction those uh, very precious efforts that are taking place right now. Let's move on to the last, I would call it the, the, the big elephant probably in the room right now here in Israel is the Iranian conflict. Uh, let me start maybe with, you know, the Ukrainian war on that. I believe on the end of February, the world woke up to a new reality where, uh, in particular, Germany, the country I was coming from, we all believe that um, you can, in a way, pay off a dictatorial re regime by just 
uh, encouraging them with economic deals and with purchasing their goods, and then they will be adopt Western democracy and our values from the Western world. And they realized from one day to the next that this is absolutely not true, that Putin was an economic partner, but definitely didn't share our values. And I'm afraid a little bit if we talk about Iran today that Europe in particular, and also America, didn't get that lesson. They still believe if we have a good deal with enough money for Iran, they actually might be appeased and they might change their minds about Israel. But I believe Putin showed everybody that uh, this definitely is not true. There are people in the world which are not viable by our Western economy. And Dan, if you want to, if you want to take the lead on that. Yeah. Well, you know, the United States has traditionally done, uh, they've done business uh, with uh, strong uh, uh, monarchs and dictators in, in you know, hoping that uh, stability and strong economic relations will maintain America's vital interest. Well, what we've, the opposite has also proved to be untrue, where, where you have uh, more progressive, liberal progressive governments in the United States supporting movements like the Palestinian, like the, the, the PLO, and, and uh, revolutionary movements, uh, even, even looking at the Iranians. The problem with the Iranian regime is that they have proxies called the Hezbollah, they have mm. proxies called the Hamas, they have proxies called the Iraqi Special Forces, uh, and, uh, and they have proxies called the Houthis in uh, Yemen. So the opposite has also proved untrue, uh, that uh, when you have uh, revolutionary organizations that supposedly are, are, are the uh, connected with a far left-leaning progressive and radical movements, that that would be the counter to someone like Putin. So this way has been a problem uh, in terms of, of, of dictators and uh, authoritarian regimes, but it's also been, the opposite also been proven problematic. So it's a balancing act by, by liberal um, uh, republics such as Germany, by the way, and, uh, and, and what the United States is based upon as a liberal republic, um, to do the balancing act and to stand by its, its principles. Um, I just mentioned uh, uh, just with regard to Iran, because Iran is one of the biggest promoters, not only of, of international terror and subversion, but also of BDS, of political warfare. And it was Germany, the first country in the Western world, whose parliament said in the Bundestag in 2019, that BDS is an, is an, is an anti-Semitic, it is an anti-Semitic jihadi supporting uh, movement right. and, and it should be congratulated for that moral example and the rest of the western world should take up that example and they should stop and the united states uh, is playing with fire by trying to make a deal with the iranian movement that is that that, that is promoted by muslim extremist messianic messianic uh, 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 leaders and uh, they can't they won't be able to buy quiet the problem that they have on the one hand, is that they're they're struggling against Russia in its in, in its unpro, in its unprovoked um, uh, invasion of the Ukraine, and at the same time, Russia becomes the key player in the American uh, desire uh, to rein in Iran, which, by the way, also threatens Russia. So Russia has a lot of leverage over the United States in both conflicts because of the because of the United States' weakness on the Iranian file. Uh, and, and if we remember, for all of the complaints and the criticisms against former President Trump, um, the Iranians were, the Iranian regime was at its weakest point in years, um, just three, four years ago, with the total shutdown and boycott um, and sanctions against Iran. And um, the, 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 the Biden administration um, has revived, re-energized, and, and re-encouraged the Iranian regime that it that it once again could put America in its uh, in its pocket. So I, I read this morning uh, in one of the Israeli news outlets they say that Iran might be just two weeks ago from building the bomb, the nuclear bomb. Uh, Pinchas, how realistic is that, and how how dangerous is the region with Iran having a nuclear bomb? Well, I also read the articles about how Iran is close. Uh, to, uh, to get uh, sufficient enrichment uh, to build uh, a bomb. But as far as I understand, uh, to have the ability uh, to build a bomb does not mean that tomorrow they build a bomb. Still, they need to develop technologies uh, uh, 
of course, we, uh, nobody of us want them to have the sufficient uh, material. Uh, and I think that this must be some kind of a red line here, okay? Uh, if a red line, I don't know, we heard about many red lines in the past that uh, were, not, uh, 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 were not honored, but nevertheless, between sufficient enrichment material and the bone, there is still a way to go. And there is time uh, to do things. Now, the main problem, in my opinion, uh, with Iran, that the West did not identify the weak point of Iran. The weak point of Iran is that the Persian people is less than half of the Iranian complex. There are many minorities in Iran, okay? Uh, most of them are not happy with the Persian hegemony. Okay, and Iran in this respect is very similar to Syria and Lebanon, very similar to Syria and Lebanon. And uh, nobody tried to exploit this reality inside Iran to, uh, to, uh, to, to make the, the, the Iranian regime collapsing from the inside, okay? Now, I believe that one of the main reasons why the Ayatollahs are racing for the bomb is not to make the same mistakes that Gaddafi made. He gave up his nuclear, uh, a, a, a nuclear uh, a, a project and there was no, nothing to defend him later. And they think that if they will have a bomb, this will be a deterrent against any power from the outside to topple them, okay? This is not the only reason, okay? They still want to be an empire, etc. cetera, uh, uh, but it is one of the, more, of the more important reasons, okay? And I think, I don't understand why the West is so late in, in making the internal clashes inside Iran. It's not that difficult, okay? It's not that difficult. And, and I, miss I, wonder, I wonder why nobody's doing anything in this direction. Because, because in the West, there has been a fundamental ignorance about culture in the Middle East yeah. for, for the last, for the last uh, hundred years of American intervention in the Middle East, and specifically in the last 60 years. Uh, I know a former Pentagon analyst for 30 years told me he, at the age of 55, was the youngest uh, Farsi and Arabic and Turkish speaking member of the Pentagon uh, intelligence team, which means they are, they are wholly professionally retarded in their cultural approach to all the nuances in the Middle East, which is why you have to have a Pinchas in Bari and others to explain to you the cultural mm -hmm. dimensions of uh, nuances in the Middle East. This is where America has been an utter failure. And I remember a few years ago, I believe it was still in Obama's time, there were riots and uprising in the streets of Tehran, and the West completely failed to support them. You remember that? Yeah, yeah sure. 2009. 2010. 2009, Absolutely. exactly. Absolutely. Look, uh, Obama was making deals with, with, with Ayatollah Khamenei. I mean, he was making deals with the, source of, with the source of the trouble, not the solution to the trouble, thinking, as you said, Jurgen, about 15, 10, 12 minutes ago, that if you pay enough money to an Ayatollah, you know, he's going to, uh, you know, if you give him X number of billion dollars in, in, in Deutsche, in the Deutsche Marks, in, on, on slats, in cash, on airplanes, he's going to be your friend. No, he's going to take your money and he's going to continue to attack you. And Israel, what Israel has done, which wasn't quite explained on this call, is that Israel's red line is very different than Europe's red line or the United States red line. Israel's red line is 90% enrichment, which is military-grade enrichment of uranium. The U.S. deadline is not 90% enrichment. It's actually fitting a uranium-sufficient uh, 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 material and uh, retrofitting it onto an, inter onto an intercontinental ballistic missile. So those, those red lines are different, and Israel is very nervous about the delayed American and European red lines. So how, how close are we to this uh, red line? And I'm asking this in the uh, 
backdrop of what we read today in the news here in Israel that the Israeli military, in particular the Air Force, is having joint maneuvers, uh, training sessions with the American army, in particular to use their facilities to fuel airplanes in the air. In, that means enabling them to have an airstrike on any location in Iran. So this seems to me a, quite a, uh, an alarm, alarming bell that we might be very close to a military conflict with Iran. Well, we've had a military, look, Iran has been in a military terror conflict with Israel since 1979. Let's be very clear that Iran has been at war with Israel and the Jews since 1979. The question is, how, does it move from low intensity conflict, middle intensity conflict to high intensity conflict? The second, the second point is that without going into detail, Israel has a number of allies and friends in the Arab world that surround Iran, that he would not have trouble uh, using as, as basis of operations. So that the, you know, the, and I'm sure the Iranian mullahs know that. So you don't only need to, uh, they don't only need to um, uh, gas up in the air. The Iranians know they are already surrounded by, by, by the Israeli military. And they probably also know that they shouldn't test Israel because it won't work out too well for them. So um, how close do you think, you know, this, this news that we read right now, does this, is this just a more uh, uh, a traditional uh, training between armies, of course, in a tense situation, or do you think that's a step in a further e escalation? Well, uh, I think that, uh, first of all, it is a threat to Iran. I don't think that the United States is trigger happy to start a war with Iran. I don't see this uh, mm. coming uh, near. It is a, a signal to Iran, be careful. Uh, we don't want to engage uh, in war with you, but who knows, who knows? Maybe our calculation uh, will slip. We don't know, okay? Be careful, be careful. Now, Iran, uh, I think that Iran wants a the international money because they need to feed the, in the terrorist uh, webs around the Middle East. They need the money. We know that uh, there is Hamas problems with, uh, with Iranian money and uh, Hezbollah, etc. They need the money. They need the money. So they, they eager to have the agreement because they need the money. But also they understand threats. Threats they understand very well. Okay? And uh, and uh, the purpose of the Americans uh, cooperating with the, with the Israelis are different than the Israelis. Mm -hmm. The Americans want to enforce the Iranians to sit down and, and sign the agreement, but the Israelis want uh, to encourage the Americans not to sign the agreement. Mm -hmm. So I think that this is still the, the key problem between the United States and Israel in this, in this respect, okay? Uh, how the, now the Iranians, as far as we can judge from, until now at least, they are ready that the Arabs will die for them, but they are not ready to die for themselves, okay? So as long as they can uh, trigger the Arabs to Bukawama, to resistance, etc., 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 and to die for them, uh, they will prefer this, okay? And uh, so as long, why they want to feed Hezbollah and Hamas? Because they want the Arabs to die and not the, not the Iranians to die. And as long as, uh, as they are still interested in Hezbollah and Hamas, it means they are not interested in war. That's the meaning. But I, I think, you know, we spoke earlier about paradigm shift. Um, there is also, I believe, the last few years, a major shift underway that um, the amount of Arabs that were willing to die for the Iranian or Muslim cause, no matter who is behind that, is shrinking. And I think one of the reasons the Abrahamic Accords came together was because there were enough Arabs in the region says we are not going to, not only not to die for them, but we are actually afraid of them that they might kill us also. So there is, 
I believe also a shift. It's probably some extremist group like Hezbollah in, in Lebanon and Hamas in Gaza, and then of course the Houthis in, in Yemen. But I believe the Arab street at large, uh, they lost completely the trust in Iran. I, I agree. You already mentioned Yahya Sinwar, the, the leader of, uh, of Gaza, that gave his, uh, his hot speech uh, instead of entering uh, a front with Israel, instead, not to encourage a front, but instead of, of, of opening a, a front with Israel, the same we see Hezbollah very careful, very careful, not opening a front with Israel, and all the hot speeches of Nasrallah uh, are instead, instead of engaging war with Israel, not to, to, to bring it closer, okay? So I think that you are right in this respect because uh, all the Arabs uh, understand that there is a, 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 a level, there is a, a point uh, from which they will not serve st as stupid tools, proxies for Iran. Well, I think this webinar today was uh, for me to hear, even though we spoke about conflicts, we spoke about a, a government that is falling apart right now, even as we are talking, uh, even though it, se it seemed to be like we are talking about a nation in a big crisis, um, you know, the, the encouraging undercurrent of the today's meeting is that there is a change in the Arab street right here in Israel. There's an increasing numbers of uh, Israeli Arabs that want to be part of the Israeli success story. And also that the global, the, the Arab League's support of the Iranian cause is shrinking by the day. And of course, we have to pray that it also will uh, have its ripple effect to places like Lebanon and the Gaza Strip and some other uh, crazy groups in the Middle East. And in the midst of all that, you know, we spoke about a lot of conflict, about a government that might need re-election. Israel remains to be the absolute undisputed successful story of the Middle East. It's the, the nation of the unicorn. It's a nation that brings forth, forth incredible economic uh, scientific successes and in spite of maybe we even can say because of those adversary they are thriving here in this in this region like no other state did over the last 2000 years and uh, um, can i get a, a very short maybe one or two sentence closing summary of you, what you feel is the situation in the middle east and then uh, it's it's we are already talking for more than an hour i think it's good to say farewell to all our listeners Absolutely. Dan, why don't you start? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think you summarized it very well, Jurgen. I just want to emphasize the point that the Arab street or the Arab world, the Arab leadership, is more frightened of Iran uh, less than it's less supportive of Iran. It's frightened of Iran. Uh, the Saudis believe that they would be number one on the target list, and Tel Aviv would be number two on the target list. Mm -hmm. So that that the paradigm shift really is that the uh, you know they refer to them uh, uh, cynically as the Shia. And, and, and you know, traditionally, the Sunni, the Sunnah, which is 85% of, uh, of the Arab world, and the Shia, which is about 15%, have had a, 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 uh, a very negative relationship between the two of them. The Sunni considering the Shia as, uh, uh, as, uh, what, they, as what they call, uh, uh, I've forgotten the word in English, uh, they, 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 they're against, they're betrayers of the religion. They're not the true, mm. they're not true Muslim Arabs. So, um, what, uh, what Israel is most concerned about is less of, a, of a, an Iranian nuclear bomb coming from Tehran, but the but a, a nuclear material that could be retrofitted into a suitcase or into rockets coming out of Lebanon. There are 180,000 rockets in Lebanon facing us right now as we speak, and there are tens of thousands of rockets facing us from Hamas-sponsored Hamas in the south. That's the major fear of the Israelis in terms of some sort of conflict with the um, with the Israeli, I'm sorry, with the Iranian-inspired and directed and financed uh, uh, jihadi network. So that's where Israel is going to focus its uh, its energies, um, and that's why also why Hezbollah knows that that uh, Lebanon will be uh, unfortunately Hezbollah-controlled Lebanon will be destroyed as the as the next signal to the Iranians before Israel attacks. Uh, Iran itself. So this, these are some of the, I think, some of the nuances that we have to take 
uh, into account. On the other hand, Israel is strong. Um, it, it, the country's in a little bit of a chaotic situation, but um, I don't. I think there's never been a moment where we haven't been in a chaotic situation. So we, so I think we we will be doing just fine going forward. Amen. So Pinchas, your final world. Well, I think that uh, if you put aside the headlines of the press, I think that uh, Israel makes uh, fine advances in the Middle East and inside its uh, Arab uh, citizens. And uh, we need uh, to look uh, beyond the headlines to see maybe the reality, the real reality is different than the headlines. Absolutely. And uh, I want to thank Pinchas Inbari, Middle East expert, expert in Palestinian affairs, for joining us today in this ICJ webinar. And of course, Dan Deigel, Todaraba, thank you so much for joining yeah, us today you. for this very insightful discussion on what's happening right now. And I hope that as you have been listening to us, you have been encouraged about, um, in spite of some of the shadows that we see, that there is in general a very positive development here in the Middle East, in particular uh, with the nation of Israel. So thanks so much for joining us today. Unfortunately, as I said, we are not able to answer Q&As because this was just pre-recorded a few moments earlier before the broadcast. So thanks for joining us. And I look forward seeing you next week again at the ICJ webinar next Thursday. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. We'll see you next Thursday at 4 p.m. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on our social media pages for more exclusive ICJ content.